0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
0: This morning, we are starting a brand new series in the life of our church. We're studying the life and work of Jesus Christ uh, through the gospel of Mark. Now, if you were to Google the most influential humans to ever live, Jesus would be in the top three. In probably every list you could find, the first page on Google, I did it. In every list on the first page, Jesus was in the top three. Now, what's interesting here, Jesus, a man born in Bethlehem, right, over 2,000 years ago, a man who never owned a home, a man who never traveled more than 100 miles from his own hometown, a man who lived most of his life as a carpenter, in a small town, who never married, who never wrote a book, or held a public, public office. okay, And yet, two millennia later, he ranks as one of the most influential humans in history. That's quite remarkable. But what's true, what makes Jesus truly unique is the fact that he did all that while claiming to be God. Or more accurately, the Son of God. See, obviously, like, if somebody raises up and they're pretty popular, and as soon as they say, I'm God, people are like, okay, he's crazy. Right? We write him off. He was a good man. Now he's just crazy. Right? So we just walk away. But Jesus did all of that while saying he was the Son of God. Now, it takes a lot to convince your mama that you're the Son of God. Okay? I'm just going to say that right away. And And your brothers and sisters. Now, none of the other influential people on the lists. None of them ever claimed to be God. None of them said they were divine. And it's this claim that Jesus makes about himself that actually requires all humans to study him. See, you can read Plato or not. Plato, okay, for some of you. Plato, there's a T in there. I read Plato every day. You can study Aristotle or not, right? It won't really change your life too much. These were smart guys. They were philosophers who have influenced us with their ideas, but honestly, they were just men. They were just men with good ideas. Their teaching isn't critical to live a full life. You can take them or leave them, right? But Jesus is different. Jesus didn't come as a philosopher or as a prophet with a set of ideas and concepts and maybe some moral teaching that you can, you know, take it or leave it. You can choose to believe it or choose not to. Jesus came, in his words, as God, the very reason for life. Now, think how different that is. He didn't come with philosophy. He came in flesh and blood. He didn't come with just ideas and concepts. He came in front of people standing in flesh and blood saying, I'm the only person in the world that can make you happy. You didn't know it. All life is about me. You can't be happy unless you find yourself in me. You can't be satisfied unless you drink the water that I provide. I'm the living water. I'm the true breath. Jesus came with these type of statements. See, Do you see why we need to study Jesus? If this is true, if he really was God and he really was the son of God, then in order for anyone to live a full and satisfied life, they've got to know Jesus. So... Everything else in life, if, what is God? God is eternal, okay? No beginning, no end, right? So if God came down and walked among us somehow in the flesh and blood of this man named Jesus Christ, that means everything else you could base your life on will be eternally out of date. Your job has an end date. Your money has an end date. Your recreation has an end date. Maybe even your marriage has an end date. Your kids have an end date. Everything in your, else in your life will die and will fade after 80, maybe, if we're lucky, 100 years, right? So anything else in our life that we base o- our life upon has an expiration date, but if, but Jesus Christ, since he's e- if He is eternal, right, no end date, or no beginning date, no end date, then everything else is eternally out of date. And there's this kind of rule of thought that's going around our world right now that you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Don't be on the wrong side of history. Listen, if you're not in Jesus, you are on the wrong side of history. Jesus is what this whole life is about. That's what what he says. We're going to kind of study some of these claims, right? So, now, there are many different ways to study Jesus. You could study the life and work of Jesus through many different means, but we're specifically going to study Jesus as he's revealed to us in the gospel of Mark. Now, why? Why study Mark? Well, well, let me just say this. I, this week, I was, stu- I was uh, watching one of my favorite shows, which is called Moonshiners. Now, I watch the show for many different reasons, mostly because I think I'm going to see one of my relatives on there. But <laughs> the thing about Moonshiners is moonshine is all about, and I'm not condoning this, just so you know, just a little rec- prerequisite here, moonshiners... Our moonshine is all about getting people drunk, okay? That's what moonshine is about. It's like 180-proof whiskey, right? One shot of it can get a person inebriated. And when I was watching this and I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, That's, it's, so, it's, it's like the Gospel of Mark, okay? The Gospel of Mark is strong and fast, Right. it's the shortest of all the gospel accounts it's the most compact but it's 180 proof like luke includes all these extra details mark just gives us the facts we're going to be we're going to begin to see that one of mark's favorite words is the word immediately He throws immediately into everything. Like Jesus Jesus did this, and immediately he left. Jesus did that, and immediately he went that way. Jesus did that, and immediately he just throws immediately. So you get this fast-paced kind of ADHD account of Jesus. That's probably why I like it. (laughs) See, Mark, what's interesting, Mark doesn't even record much of Jesus' teaching. Some of it, but very little of Jesus' teaching is in the book of Mark. It's all about Jesus doing Mark is more about who Jesus was and what did Jesus do than it is about what he taught. So the Gospel of Mark doesn't just move us intellectually with good teaching. It doesn't just tell us here's some morals for life and here's some ways to live a good life. Mark actually confronts us with the real person. And that's exactly what we want to happen to us and our church over the next year. We want to discover and encounter and come face-to-face with the real, authentic, historical Jesus. Now, before we do that, jump into that, let's ask this. Why, or Who was Mark and why did he write this book? Right? Who was Mark and why did he write this book? Now listen, it's interesting. Mark was not one of Jesus' apostles. His name is actually John Mark, and he was not himself an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. Mark was uh, a ministry partner of Peter. Early records written down by Papias say that he was Peter's secretary and translator. Uh, If you know anything about the New Testament and the books and church planting, uh, Peter and Paul had a disagreement over this guy named John Mark, right? Uh, John didn't want to go with him one place, and Paul was a little fired up about it, but then kick him out of here, he ain't worth it. This, I, I don't, he was mad at John Mark, and then John Mark, and then later made up, and, and they were all good again. But Ma- J- Mark here was Peter's transcriber. So why did, so, so this, listen what Richard Bauckham, a New Testament, the leading New Testament scholar at Cambridge in his book, Jesus and the eyewitness witnesses says, he says, throughout the book, you're going to notice that nothing happens through this whole book of Mark, nothing happens without Peter being present. So the gospel of Mark is actually the eyewitness testimony of Peter that's being written down and transcribed by Mark. Okay, so this is, the book of Mark is actually Peter's eyewitness testimony. So why did Mark write this book? Now, Immediately following Jesus' crucifixion, right, uh, the life and work of Jesus spread orally. People didn't write it down. They didn't feel the need to write it down. If you had a question about who Jesus was or what Jesus did, all you had to do was go to one of the apostles, go to somebody who was there, eyewitness testimony, and say, what did Jesus do? What did he say? How How did he live? And that person would tell you. But what happened twenty or thirty years after the crucifixion of Jesus was the apostles started dying out. the apostles started being uh, being killed for their faith. so then kind of uh, myths could start being spread right and if you didn't have something written down, if it was all oral oral, then you could have these kind of fake uh, Stories about Jesus going around. Somebody could come up and go, you know what? I heard Jesus was the son of God. Because he was the son of God, he never had to eat. Right? And if you didn't, but people are like, no, wait, no. I was with Jesus, and we ate together a lot. Like, that's not true. So what happened was these remaining apostles that were still left is they wrote down their accounts. Okay? They wrote down their accounts, or these people went, um, and Luke went, and he was paid by Theophilus, this guy, to write down this orderly account to go interview the eyewitnesses. Okay, what exactly did Jesus do? What exactly did he say? Okay, so it was very important to get this, the oral account, the eyewitness testimony down on paper to be preserved for us so these myths about Jesus could be kind of squelched, right? So that's what this is. This is... Peter's eyewitness testimony written down by Mark. So, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all wrote down their eyewitness testimony to make sure everyone had the facts about Jesus straight. Now, Mark here, interviewing Peter, is the earliest of all the Gospels. Okay? So, this, that's another reason we're studying the Gospel of Mark. It's the earliest, it's the shortest, it's the most potent of all the Gospels. Okay? So, we are studying this kind of Hard-hitting, fast-paced eyewitness account to the historical Jesus. It's the moonshine of the Gospels. All right. Now, I doubt there's a person here who's uh, never heard of Jesus. I think many of us in here probably think, "Oh yeah, I, I know Jesus. I, I got him. I, I get, you know, who he was, what he taught." But I know that there's many people in this room who have never studied in depth studied the eyewitness accounts. Of Jesus, the historical records written down for us on the life and work of Jesus, right? So that's what we're going to do. But what what happens to many of us is because we live in a culture that kind of talks about Jesus a lot. We hear stories about Jesus. We hear maybe a Bible story growing up or a lesson on Jesus here and there. We pick up bits and pieces from Sunday school and sermon and books and social media and friends and family. And what happens is we begin to concoct a Jesus in our minds out of the bits and pieces that we've heard about him, right? So we all have this Jesus in our head. If you've heard the name Jesus, if you've heard of any of this, you've got this Jesus in your head. But ironically, most of the time, those images of Jesus that are in our head look a lot like us. If you are a buttoned up and straight laced person, the Jesus in your mind is probably pretty buttoned up and straight laced too. He was a hard hitting truth speaker who led a moral life and was willing to die for the truth, right? But if you are more of a free spirited nature, the Jesus of your mind is that way too. He's less rigid. He's got less walls built up. He's way more laid back. He loves to party. He spends the majority of his time with the marginalized, the poor, the prostitutes. I told the guys back in the back that most of us, we kind of think of Jesus as a better version of ourselves. Whatever we're about, Jesus would be about that too. But he's just a little better than we are. Now, A.W. Tozer has famously said, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. That's the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God, your concepts of God, your mental pictures of Jesus is the most important thing about you because it will shape how you live. It will shape what you think God requires of you, who God is, how should I live, how should I love the people around me, who should I love, what should my morals and my ethics be, what should my behavior look like, Your concept of God and your concept of Jesus is the most important thing about you because out of that concept, out of that theology, your life is lived. We live out of the theology that we have and what we really believe about God. So if if the Jesus of your mind has been created by a patchwork of Jesus stories you've picked up over the years, it's very likely that the Jesus of your mind is not the real Jesus. That Jesus might just be a better version of yourself. And and only the real Jesus has real power to change us, to change our families, to change our church, our missional communities, and to change ultimately our city and our world. Right? My grandma and great-grandma used to make these quilts, right, like these patchwork quilts, just get pieces of all kind of different fabric and put them together. Listen, a patchwork Jesus, a bunch of different stories, concepts put together. A patchwork Jesus is a powerless Jesus. Because it's a figment of your imagination, it's a concept you've created. It's not a historical man, the historical God man. I've met people who say, Justin, I've tried everything, and I still can't change. I've tried Jesus. But he didn't help me. My life is still the same. My insecurities, my fears, my emptiness, it's all still there. Now, more often than not, this person hasn't met the real Jesus. They were introduced to some phony version of the real thing, some patchwork version, some characterization of Jesus. I've got a few of these that I've thought up kind of. One that people often talk about is this, he's a self-help Jesus. And it's this one. People tell me all the time, well, you know, the Bible says, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Um, Actually, the Bible doesn't say that. Actually, the Bible says the exact opposite of that. The Bible says that God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps the dead in their sins. God helps the, the spiritually incapacitated. Those who can't help themselves, God gives grace to those people. So many people... They come to Jesus thinking he's a self-help. He's going to help me out a little bit. He's just you know, I'm almost good enough, and Jesus will just tip me over the edge, and he'll help me out a little bit, right? And this version of Jesus is kind of like this moral teacher or this kind of maybe even a legalistic guy who who gives you a standard to live up to, and you can't quite live up to it, but he's going to help you get over that extra 20%. That's not a real Jesus. The other one is the Jesus is my homeboy Jesus. I debated between Jesus is my homeboy or Jesus is my neighbor, uh, the, the Mr. Rogers Jesus on this one. And this, this is kind of like Jesus, you know, he just wants to be your friend. He's out looking for friends. Won't you be his friend? And this, this, this Jesus is kind of pushed from pulpits across the country, right? He's just really lonely in heaven and just really needs some pals. Would you be Jesus' pal? Right? And, and we're going to see in this text, like that's not, that's not Jesus. That's not the real Jesus. The next one is the life coach Jesus. Now, the life coach Jesus is this. I really want to mimic a preacher while I do this, but I'm going to try not to. The life coach Jesus is, he just wants you to pray a prayer and then your wildest dreams will come true. If you walk an aisle, oh boy, I'm about to do it. If you walk an aisle right now, if you walk an aisle, if you raise your hand, if you sign a card, if you pray a prayer, then everything in your life will ta- that you want to happen will take place. You'll get the job, you'll get the promotion, you'll get the girl, you'll get the guy. No, There won't be any sickness in your life, right? Everything, you know, you walk down and just you get rainbows and tulips, right? If you if you if you're a parent and you have to watch the the, the movie Frozen right and I, if, so I, I see this like three times a day, so maybe my all of my illustrations might come from this movie for the next year or so. But Olaf, the little the little uh, the little snowman at the end, he gets to walk around with his own personal flurry, and he's got this little he's like this little cloud that walks over him and just gives him snow wherever he goes, right? That's what that's what these preachers that preach this Jesus that's kind of what they teach, like from the, the best parking lot at Walmart, or the pet parking spot at Walmart. Like, you pull into that, and, and Jesus was just blocking people out for you the whole time. <laughs> On to the next one. This one's for my kids, right? It's the personal life coach Jesus, right? And it's, it's a false Jesus. It's not a true, it's not a real Jesus. And then the lastly that I've got, and there's a bunch of these out there, is the social justice Jesus. This is the Jesus that's not concerned about your soul, this is the Jesus that doesn't preach heaven and hell. He doesn't preach eternal damnation. This is the Jesus that doesn't mention that what you're doing is a sin. What you're doing is condemnable. What you're doing deserves the wrath of God. This is a Jesus who didn't really need to die. All he needed to do was come and help us make this place a better place. It's the, it can be construed as the kingdom of, kingdom of God, but it's not the king, you know, trying to push the kingdom of God on this earth right now without Christ having to come again to renew all things. It's basically he, Jesus just wants you to serve the poor and be a better neighbor and, and lay your life down for your friends. And, and you know, some of, that, the, the, these, some of these have grains of truth in them. That's why they're so uh, deceitful is they have a little bit of truth and they get in. and that, But that's what heresy is. Heresy is like almost true most of the time, right? It's almost true. It's almost believable. But we've got to strain it out and we've got to condemn it. We've got to say no. And that's what we're going to do through the study in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to say, that's not Jesus. If you want to be about Jesus, if you want to be on the mission of Jesus, we've got to learn who is the real Jesus. So, with all of that said, we are going to take a sip of some moonshine this morning, right? Moonshine of the, go- the Gospel, moonshine, here we go. So, if you've got your Bibles, and, and you know what my deal is, is like... I hope we do get a little tipsy this morning. <laughs> I hope we do encounter Jesus, and it's going to be a long study. We're going to be in this book for a year, so we're, gonna, we're not going to learn everything about Jesus in one week or 10 weeks or 20 weeks, so it's going to take us a long time to study this, the, this uh, gospel of count. Uh, so let's jump in. If you have your Bible, open it up, Mark chapter 1. You can find it on our Sacred City app. You can find it on YouVersion Bible app, um, but let's pull it up. If we've got it on the screen, we'll put it on the screen. Here we go. Let's get after it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right. Mark wastes no time for us. Like I said, he is coming at us hard and heavy right away. What is this a book about? This book is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the word gospel, uh, evangelion is the Greek, and it means good news. Now, this word, was used to announce the arrival of someone important. When the king would come to town, he would send a herald ahead of him to announce the good news, right, to announce the good news of his arrival. That's what the word was used for, to announce the arrival. And what we're going to see in a minute is Jesus had a herald too. Jesus had a guy who would come and preach the gospel beforehand as well. John the baptizer was sent by God ahead of Jesus to announce his arrival. So right away, Mark is telling us this book is about the arrival of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. And what's interesting is this book, if you go to Luke, uh, Luke's going to give you a long kind of opening. Luke's going to give you a bunch of his, he's going to teach about the wise men. He's going to teach about Mary. He's going to teach about the angels. He's going to give this big, you know, a lot of nativity stuff. None for us here in Mark. If you go to Matthew, you're going to be really bored for the first chapter unless you're a Bible nerd right, because Matthew's all about the genealogy of Jesus, he's tracing down the lineage of Jesus, making sure the Jewish people knew that he came through David and he came through Abraham, right, if you go through John, John's going to get even farther back, John's going to start, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he goes back, all the way back to creation to start his gospel account, and Mark is just like, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, like, okay, I can deal with that. Right? That's how he's starting. He's starting that kind of abruptly. Now, what does that mean here? He's, okay, so it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel, the good news, the arrival of Jesus Christ. Now, that word Christ, for some of us, uh, we need to know that Christ is not Jesus' last name. All right? Christ literally means the anointed ones. What did anointed mean? Anointed... In the Old Testament, kings would be anointed to their office. Okay, today we're, they're sworn in, right? They put their hand on a Bible and they're sworn in to office. Back then, they were anointed; oil was poured over their head to set them apart to God and to their office. Okay, so right away, Luke or right away, Mark is telling us that Jesus is the anointed king the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, the one who would come and set up God's kingdom on this earth, and he would rescue God's people from all of their trouble. So when Mark calls Jesus the Christ, he's not just saying he's a king, he's saying he's the king, the king of all kings, the ruler of the cosmos, the man at whose every knee, every human will bow. How does that right there, just stop right there. How does that impact your current mental picture of Jesus? That Mark says right away, this is about Jesus, the king. This is about his arrival. The king of kings. The king of the cosmos has come. The real Jesus is the king of the universe. Now, kings usually Demand complete allegiance. You don't negotiate with kings, right? You don't debate with them. You obey them or they kill you or you leave, right? But if he's the king of the cosmos, we're not leaving. We can't get out of his domain, right? So immediately he says, This. Jesus, what he's about to teach, what he's about to do, what he's about to live, he's not just something you can take or leave. He's the king of the universe, so we either submit to him and accept it or we'll be destroyed by him. That's a big weight. Does that impact your mental picture of Jesus yet? But Mark doesn't stop there in the first verse. Mark takes it one step further and he says, Jesus is the Christ, he's the king, but he's more than that. He's actually not just the Christ, he's the son of God. He's actually the son of God. And then Mark goes on to back up this claim by quoting from three places in the Old Testament. It actually says, written in Isaiah the prophet, one of those quotations is from Isaiah, the other two, one's from uh, Exodus, and the other one's from Malachi. So Jesus is the king of all kings, but he's not just a human king. He's actually the son of God who came down from heaven to rule and reign on this earth. So that's kind of, we're priming the pump here. We're trying to get us ready for the rest of this book. Mark wants to start off letting us know this isn't just about a good teacher. This isn't just like a prophet, right? Like, uh, in Islam, the prophet Muhammad came to, This isn't Jesus, isn't a prophet. Jesus is actually the Son of God, come down, the King of the universe, come down. And what's he do? And this is interesting, too, because this was written uh, to Christians in Rome. It's not written to people who really knew and understood the Old Testament. And the first thing. Uh, Peter does and Mark does as he's writing down is he quotes three places from the Old Testament. Three places that have been written down. One of those is about 1,000 years old. One's about 700 years old. One's about 500 years, or I think 500 years old, something like that. So three, really, three places in the Old Testament, really old, got a lot of, it's really rooted in history. Why is he doing that? He's wanting people to know that this Jesus, this king that's coming, it's not a new story. That's important for us to know. There's many people that teach that all you have to do is just, just read about Jesus in the New Testament. The New Testament's all you need to know. No, 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 no. That's like picking up a story in the last half of the book. Jesus is, the story of Jesus is not a new story. It's a new chapter in a really old story. This is a new chapter in the story of the historic, ancient religion of Israel. Mark is saying this isn't something new. It's the completion of something really old. Now, what is that? Here's the story. In the beginning was the garden. God created everything, right? Or in the beginning was God. God was alone. God was happy. He was a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living in a happy, the happy land of the trinity. He was completely full, fulfilled and satisfied in himself. He loved the Son. The Son loved him. The Son and the Spirit it was like kind of like the love that went between them. Trinity, that's God. God is himself a community, so he's completely happy. But out of this happiness, just like when two happy couples get together, they're married, they're committed to one another, new life usually comes from that couple, right? So out of this happy land of the Trinity, creation kind of springs forth. God speaks creation into existence. There's a moment in time. Everything is created. Mankind is created good. Everything's happy, but mankind is, is kind of uh, well, he's deceived, right? There's, there's there's a- angels have fallen by this time. There's this big ancient story. Angels have fallen rebelled against God. They've been cursed out. This other angel sneaks his way back into the garden. God knew he was there. Tempts Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve rebel from God. They sin. And what happens is the judgment of God comes upon them, and all of creation gets fractured in this moment. Their relationship with God is broken. Now they're afraid of him. They used to walk in the cool of the day with him, but now they're afraid of him. They're actually, the next scene, you find them find hiding in the bushes, Right? Hiding from God in the bushes. This is just, it's, it's kind of funny. But then you also see them kind of covering themselves up. So they're hiding themselves from each other. There's this distance that co- becomes, comes between man and woman, mankind itself. There's shame and guilt that come between them. That all these human emotions begin to come up, right? The separation from God. Now there's separation from humanity. And then what we see, the whole Old Testament shows this progression. Things just get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. We see murder. We see rape. We see greed. We see all kind of bloodshed. We see all kind of horrible things that take place in the Old Testament. But through the whole thing, we constantly hear this this promise, this prophecy of God saying, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to send someone to make all things right again. And what Mark is trying to tell us, he's trying to root us into this old story right away. He's saying, Jesus isn't just some new story that popped up. He's not a new religion This is the promise from the Old Testament. This is the old ancient religion of Israel. This is the fulfillment to all of those things promised through that long waiting period in the Old Testament. He is the king's son. He's the true king that they've always been looking for. He's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all the prophecies, all the visions. And he's the one who will set things right and bring all of creation back into a right relationship with its creator. But, like I said, in that day and age, any king that was coming to town would send a herald ahead of him to announce the good news of his arrival. And Mark says Jesus had that herald too, and it was John, John the Baptizer. So that's the first line as it is written. So we've rooted in the Old Testament here, and now John, this prophet, we're going to take a look at him. First, we're going to look at the man, then we're going to look at his message. John was a Jew. He lived out in the desert. He wore camel's hair, right? A camel's hair robe cinched at the waist with a leather belt. He's a wild dude, right? He ate paleo. He uh, ate nothing but locusts and wild honey. I haven't seen the baptizer diet on New New York Times bestsellers list yet, but I'm sure it's coming. Uh, Nothing but locusts and wild honey. You probably could lose some weight doing that. But John wasn't just a wild dude. He wasn't just kind of out there. And and why was he wearing all these clothes and doing this thing? Because that's kind of... He mimicked the prophets in the Old Testament that he want, that God wanted him people to know this is a prophet, this is somebody set apart, and uh, there had been you know roughly about four hundred years of silence, no prophets, no God not speaking directly to his people. so when John showed up as a prophet, people 's ears perked up so John was a prophet, and prophets preach, they proclaim a message, and John was no different. He told he preached and proclaimed a twofold message. Look at this, verse, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, okay? So here's John's basic message. You are dirty. You are sinful. You are messed up. You have been stained by sin. You are not ready to meet this king. God is about to send a king to you, but you're not ready to meet this king. You're dirty and filthy, and you need to be cleaned up. You need to be washed. Now, for us, we're reading this, and we're like, oh, baptism. But, but this was something brand new at this time. Now, in the Old Testament, the, the Jews had their ceremonial washings. Hebrews calls them baptisms. Where before entering the, the presence of the Lord and before eating and before taking their dinner and stuff, they had to wash their hands and they would wash their feet and they'd wash certain parts of their body. But here's the deal: this was something they did themselves. You recognize that, that you were unclean, but you would clean yourself up before going to meet with God. If you were a Gentile that became a Jew, you would actually have to pour a bucket of water on yourself to cleanse yourself before you uh, took part in these wash or took part in these meals and this these uh, Jewish ceremonial um, fest festivals. But for the first time, John, the baptizer, is saying this, humanity, you can't clean yourself up on your own. You can't wash yourself. You need to come to me, repent of your sin, confess your filthiness, confess that you're a sinner, that you need the grace of God, and you need to come and be washed by someone else and I'm going to put you in this water, and you're going to come up, and you're going to come up clean. For the first time, there, there was a kind of an intermediary here that had to wash them. And the town's emptied, it tells us. People came for many miles, they traveled many miles to come out, of the, out to the desert and to be washed by John. His sermons struck a chord with him. I think deep down, if we're really honest with ourselves, we would say, when someone says we're messed up, When someone says, we might not like the word sinner, we might not like that, but when when someone talks about our human propensity to screw up our own life, our human propensity to mess up our relationships, our human propensity to offend other people and and for relationships to break down, when someone says that's actually sin and you need to be washed and cleansed from that, I think that resonates down inside that we know we've tried all the self-help books, right? We've read the books. Right? We've watched Oprah re- religiously for a decade. We did all that. Now we're on to Dr. Phil, and we still can't get our life fixed. There's a something about the human condition that cannot improve itself, that cannot fix itself, that cannot stop breaking relationships and breaking things. And John says, that's because you're dirty, and you need to turn to God and come and be washed. And people, it resonated with them, and they came out, They were convicted and convinced they couldn't clean themselves up on their own. They needed to be baptized by someone else to be made ready and fit for the king's arrival. And then secondly, look at this second part of his message uh, in verse 7. And John the baptizer preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not even worthy to stoop down And untie, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, in the book of Luke, in chapter 7, Jesus says of John that he's the greatest man that's ever been born. John the baptizer. That's what Jesus says about John. He's the greatest man that's ever been born. All the prophets, Moses, like, John the baptizer is the greatest. But John here says, and think about this, this guy goes out to the desert. Okay. He doesn't go to the booming metropolis town and start speaking in the temple and start speaking in maybe you know the, the the places where they had festivals and they had plays and stuff. He doesn't go speaking there. He goes out to the wilderness in the desert, you know, a bleak place, a place where life can't it's life can't be sustained on its own out there. And he starts preaching this message of repentance, and people are emptying the towns and they're coming out to hear him and to be baptized and to turn from sin. And and he's gaining. I mean. Thousands of followers, right? People, he's the hottest thing in town. Ta- not, not in town. He's the hottest thing in the wilderness for sure. But he's the most attractional person. But one of his core mess- his really his core message was, someone is coming who's greater than I. I am not the man. Someone's coming who I'm not even worthy to get down and untie his sandals and that's the most menial task. Even a slave wouldn't do that task, right? In that day... They wore sandals, and they're in the desert, their feet are nasty, their feet are filthy. No one was low, you know, as low enough to untie people's sandals. And John says, compared to Jesus, I am nothing. This is the greatest man that ever lives, Jesus said. He says, I've baptized you with water, but this man, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, that's part of the trinity right that's father son holy spirit this this jesus the son of god will baptize you with the holy spirit john's whole life and ministry was a sign pointing to the reality of jesus get ready the king is coming the king is actually here People flocked to John. They thought he was great, but John said, compared to the one that's coming after me, I'm less than a slave. I'm not, even unworthy, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. My baptism is the sign. His baptism by the Spirit is the reality. John is telling them and us, by extension, water doesn't wash away your sins. Only the Spirit can do that. You might have been baptized as a baby, you might get baptized a, as an adult. Baptism doesn't save anyone. Baptism doesn't wash you spiritually. Only the Holy Spirit can do that, and that's called regeneration. That the Holy Spirit is sent by God, and it enters your heart, and it, you hear the gospel, and you believe by faith that and that Holy Spirit gives you that faith to believe in, and when that happens, you hear the gospel. I, what's the gospel? I was a sinner. I am in need of cleansing, and the Spirit given to us by Jesus and through Jesus can cleanse me. You believe that. I didn't do anything to earn it. I didn't do anything to deserve it. And you believe that, and you're regenerated. What does that mean? You're given a whole new life. Jesus says in other places, you're born again. You're completely made new. You're not made better. You're made new. You're not improved. You don't get an upgrade. You've been completely made new. That's what regeneration is. So how? How how do people get washed? How do people get made fit for the king? Now, this is interesting. And as I close this morning, look at verse 2 and 3. You're going to see this. All through the, uh, this is a theme that's going to run all the way through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to have to track with it. Okay? As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Now, that word, the way, it really means road. Prepare the road of the Lord. Prepare the the road for Jesus. Now, what this is saying to us, this phrase that gets repeated all the way through the gospel, that you're going to see Jesus always on the way or on the road, that John's ministry was to clear the road for Jesus. But where is that road heading? What is that road? The gospel of Mark is a fast, pa- fast-paced journey on the road to the cross. And we will never Come to understand the real Jesus until we see this reality. Let's put these two, these pieces that we've kind of saw of Jesus, let's put some of this together this morning. That Jesus is the King of kings, the Son of God, who deserves by right of who He is, right? He spoke creation into existence. He is the wisdom of God, that He is the Son of God, that He is the King of all kings. He deserves every single person on the planet he deserves their utmost worship he deserves that their entire life be based upon them because he's the only eternal one he deserves all he is worthy of all worship and yet this king came to walk a long and difficult road that led him straight to a rugged roman cross That John came to prepare the way for Jesus to walk to his execution. That Jesus is the king who comes to die. To save his people from their sins. Think about that. One of the joys of being a king is you get to send other men out to do your battles. Right? You get to sit at the king's court and eat your food and drink your wine and send lesser men out to go fight your battles. That's what kings do. Not this king. This isn't a king that sends other people out to do his bidding and he sits out back out of harm's way. He isn't like of every other God in every other religion. Listen, you want to know something that's unique about Christianity? Our God has scars. Our God was wounded. No other God, no other religion dares to even speak of a God who can be hurt. Our God could be more than hurt. Our God could walk a road to a cross, spread open wide, and could die for His people. Our our God doesn't just demand allegiance. He doesn't just say, I'm the greatest thing that's ever lived and ever existed. Worship me. Our God proves it. He comes and shows us self-sacrificial love. Why should we love Him? Because He left heaven and He came and walked a rugged Roman path to the cross and He was crucified for us in our place. How can he wash us? Because he didn't need to be washed. He was perfect. And he died a substitutionary death on the cross in our place for our sins. Think about that. This is a king, unlike other kings. He dies so that his people may live. And now, we're in a different place in history when this was being written, right? One of the things that we know if, well... For us, we could go to the book of Acts and we, and we could know that the Holy Spirit has already been given. That Jesus Christ was crucified, he was resurrected, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's sitting in a throne. It's one of the last verses of the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, ruling everything, and one of the things Jesus did when he ascended was he sent the Holy Spirit the believers in the book of Acts, and now anyone who gets the Holy Spirit, anybody who's been saved, has received the Holy Spirit, they're a brand new person, they've been given this gift of new life by Him, and if anyone in this room wants to be washed, if anyone feels dirty, feels guilty, feels condemned, feels under maybe the wrath of God, The message is that God has already provided a way out. God has already provided for your salvation, and you can be made right with God, and you can know this kind and benevolent king. All you have to do is trust the king, Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. But for us who have done that, right, for many of us in this room, we've put our faith and we've put our trust in Jesus. Is that just a box that we check and then we move on, live our life, do our thing? Checked, dealt with that. What we're going to find out through the Gospel of Mark is, no, that's not what we do. It's going to show us over and over and over. Now, what do we do now? We trust the King. Trusting the King has a beginning point. It ha- it's a decision, it's a, but it's also a moment-by-moment, moment, daily decision to follow the real Jesus. To let the real Jesus shape my thinking. To re- let the real Jesus you know, get rid of that patchwork Jesus, that phony Jesus that I have in my mind. That is the way of Jesus. That's the gospel way. And we're, so, and that's, that's my prayer, that we, we're going to do this over the next year, is we're going to continue to walk this way of Jesus, we're going to continue to study this historical Jesus, and we're going to continue to let him um, shape us. Let him imprint in our minds who he, who he is who he really was, not just who we want him to be. So it's my prayer this morning that we would submit ourselves to the king, but remember that we're not submitting, we're not submitting to a cruel king. We're submitting to a kind and gracious king who's lived our life and walked a lonely road to his own execution. A king came to die a king who has scars that's the king that we worship let me pray father i thank you for this introduction i thank you for this introduction that you wrote through peter and through mark that you you brought it to us so that we could study this we could learn of this king jesus christ the son of god this indeed is a story that no man could write God becoming man not just to give us some great moral example some great moral teaching but to come and live the life that every one of us should live Jesus came and lived that perfectly but Father a a man who lives perfectly would do nothing but repel us from him because we're not perfect We're not good enough. We would look at Jesus and go, well, I could never do that. He's perfect. And so Christ didn't just give us this great example, but he became our substitute. And he took upon himself all of our sin and all of our shame and all of of our guilt. And he paid for it at the cross. He died with it at the cross so that we could have the Holy Spirit and have a brand new life. And when God looks at us now through faith, he sees his son. He sees the perfect sacrifice of his son. So no longer are we just sinners, but we're saved sinners. We're sinners who have been given the righteousness of God that cleanses us, that washes us, that purifies us from our sin, though we still sin. So Father, I pray this morning you would give us faith to believe that you would encourage us over this next year to continue digging down and studying week after week the life and work of Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would quicken in our hearts faith and repentance, uh, that we would be quick to confess our sins and to turn to you and to be washed over and over and over and over again. And as we come to eat this meal this morning, that we eat a meal that was provided for by the King who came to die that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. He took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of my blood that will wash you of your sins. So as we come to the meal this morning, we're partaking in the king's body, in the king's blood, and it's reminding us that salvation has been taken care of, reminding us that the king of the universe has come, and he came in humility, in a way that just boggles our mind, came to show us the love of God, not just philosophically, but in flesh and blood by giving up his own life. And I pray that the body and the blood would shape us into people that represent Jesus well, the people that look like Jesus in our humility, in our sacrifice, in our love, in our devotion, in our worship. We pray this in the powerful name of the risen King, Jesus, amen.